Today we're going to talk about truth. And if you're a young parent or soon-to-be parent um, in the digital age, you are very familiar with how frustrating truth can be. Because there's this study that's been published and it's telling you how to get your child to sleep through the night. And it's amazing and it's going to revolutionize your life and your child is going to get amazing sleep and grow up and win the Nobel Prize. And then an expert weighs in two weeks later. So you're like knocking yourself out, making your baby sleep through the night. And then this expert publishes uh, something. And they're saying, oh my gosh, don't do that. Your baby is going to be um, horribly stunted. They're going to never not sleep in your bed. And they're probably going to grow up and be a criminal. And you're like, oh gosh. So you go to your pediatrician. Your pediatrician's like, no, no, don't do any of that. Do this. And so as a young, for me, and part of that is being a little bit high strung and part of that's being an Enneagram one, that I was like, I can't handle what works for you. I don't do what works. Give me the right answer. But for those of us who have tried to raise people who don't really fit a mold, um, it's really hard to find that thing. It's hard to find that truth. And so today we're going to talk about that slippery, squishy truth. Um, but before I start, I also have to acknowledge the irony that the truth homily would be delivered to you by a journalist. Because if, um, if the statistics are right, 69% of you have lost faith in journalism over the last 10 years. 95% um, of the conservatives among you. So I am fully aware that people don't necessarily see journalists as the bastions of truth. Um, so... I ask for your grace and that you'd see me as a sister in Christ and not as a journalist who's lying to you. Um, I witnessed actually that conflicted nature of truth in particular with the media um, last summer during the family separations. I am part of a Facebook group of girls I went to college with and they're very, very conservative. I went to a Christian college um, and there was a lot of angst about what was happening. And so somebody said, do you have any information? And I gave them some Texas Tribune articles. Um, the Texas Tribune is doing a fantastic job covering, they did a great job covering that. They're doing a great job covering what's going on now. And they immediately replied back, oh, that's secular media. I don't trust secular media. Um, and I was like, uh, well, I don't know what else to tell you. And so somebody then published something from a Christian news source that was talking about how the media was making this up, that it was a left conspiracy. And I'm like, I lived down the street from Catholic Charities where there were family reunifications happening, and I was just camped out there, like on their front porch reporting. And so I was like, okay, I'm seeing something with my own eyes, but because this is coming from a Christian source, you guys don't want to believe me. It was very, very strange, but it also illustrates what I'm talking about. And that's that we are all so tired of being outright lied to. Um, every, every journalist I know is trying to give you, they're doing their level best to get you the truth. I promise that, um, especially your local people. Yes, they're slant. Yes, there are certain outlets, but they're trying their best. The problem is that it can be really hard to understand what the truth is. Um, and y'all know that because you're on the receiving end of it too. And it can be really hard to pick through truth versus bias versus politics. Um, for instance, when neighborhoods were being integrated um, between African Americans and white people for the first time in uh, the 50s, there was a lot of concern 
and a lot of fear-mongering about the increase in violence in the neighborhoods that integrated. In 1957, in Levittown, Pennsylvania, if you had read in the newspaper that, quote-unquote, violence in the area increased after African-Americans moved into an all-white neighborhood, um, that framing might suggest to you, intentionally, that the um, black neighbors were now going after their white neighbors, you know, in petty crime, or that they had brought violence with them. But a full report would have mentioned that it was a white mob who had formed on the lawn of the Myers family, the first African-American family to integrate the area, and they continued to be violently harassed for almost two weeks while local papers and leaders said nothing. The whole truth matters. The fact was, yes, violent statistics went up. The whole truth matters because it tells us the different story. And trying to discern that truth in a world where you're being lied to, marketed to, politic that, it can be exhausting. Um, and it's exhausting for all of us. And so in that context, Proverbs 30, 30, 5 through 6, comes as a breath of fresh air. Every word of the Lord, every word of God proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And that's our verse for today. Um, and it's a huge, huge promise that we can trust God's word in the context that we live in where we don't always know what to trust. Um, it's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We're all familiar with that phrase. Um, from Court TV. Um, so let's, we're just going to start to pick that apart. We're going to start to go through that verse and figure out what it means. Um, every word of the Lord proves true, the truth. Now, you typically see people, the, if, you've if you've encountered this verse before, you've probably experienced it in the context of a debate. Um, seminarians love to debate the infallibility and inspiration of scripture. There's a word called plenary inspiration, which is the teaching that every single word, every grammar, everything was put in that place by God for a reason. And so you've got the guys like smoking their cigars with their topiary beards and they're like, every word, Josh, every word. Um, all the guys in seminary named Josh or Matt, just <laughs> in case you were, in case you were wondering. Um, and that's great. And I spent a lot of time in that world obsessed with systematic theology. And this is a very important verse for that discussion. But I also think that when we start pulling proof texts, what we call them, they lose some of their heft. It loses some of the fullness. And that's what God wants us to have is fullness. And so there's another verse that really honors, I think, the heft of Proverbs 35 through 6. And that is Isaiah 45, 19. And it's, I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. Another word for vain in other translations is in the emptiness or in the wasteland. What he's saying here is that there's a reality here and you were made to know it. And it's deep and it's big. It's, it's not a wasteland. Um... So I'm going to, y'all are going to get real tired of journalism, but that's all I know. So that's what I do. In journalism, we have two tests for what is real. Um, the first one is the fact checker. Um, really big newsrooms have a person whose whole job is to be a fact checker. Um, they're super helpful and they're super frustrating because they go through everything you've written line by line and they're like, I need to see the original research. Where'd you get that? What are the stats? How do you know? Prove it. And like, 
you're super annoyed by the end, but you're also not humiliated when your piece runs because you know it's true. And the other test in journalism about whether a story matched up to the larger reality is the impact. It's how it resonated. Did it hit people in accordance with a bigger truth? And that is something that's harder to measure, um, but the best stories, the best journalism and biblical stories and all that resonate with something deep in our hearts, reality, a reality that we share. Um, and there's both of the, the fact-checking and the bigger truth are both things that we also end up applying to the Bible. Um, you have a lot of people, again, back to the seminary discussion with the cigars and the, and the special beards, um, the, they'll, there's a lot of nitpicking at, oh, the inconsistencies of the Bible. Like, when Jesus was on trial, was his garment scarlet or was it purple? Because John says one, and Matthew says another. Or has anyone really seen God? Because the Old Testament says yes, but the New Testament says that no one has ever seen God and lived. So what is it? Or were women and men created at the same time as animals or after? Because Genesis 1 kind of paints it one way and Genesis 2 paints it another. And there are people who will argue about this many whiskeys into the night <laughs> and many cigars burned to the nub. Um, and there's a value in that. We need to know our Bible and really weigh out and measure all of this and come to resolution on those things. But if that's all we're doing, we're missing the bigger story. The bigger story, the bigger truth of the Bible is Jesus. And that's why um, some of you have, our family loves the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in the beginning, Sally Lloyd-Jones writes, every story whispers his name. That's the truth, the deep truth that's supposed to resonate. When I tell the truth, it resonates with God and his world in Christ. Um, he's the whole truth. So now we go to, that was the truth, the whole truth. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. And this is where we're starting to get into the, the deeper stuff. Deuteronomy, there's two verses um, that I think start to draw us into this. Um, it's all over scripture. It's all over the Psalms when David is fleeing, but these two really spoke to me. Um, Deuteronomy 33:29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. And then um, immediately to Genesis 15:1. This is God talking to Abraham, or Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So. The idea of taking shelter in God's word or in God, in his truth, is that we would look to him and not our own strength, power, or resources to take care of us. When we trust ourselves, we tend to escalate situations because we're reacting in our own defense. Um, it's really hard to judge what constitutes an eye for an eye. Typically, we go more like face for an eye or like arm or leg for an eye. And we've all been part of them um, in your marriage, in your family, with your parents, your siblings, where like something got really nasty really fast. And you're like, how did that? We were talking about the democratic debates and now we are shouting and it is personal and I want to leave. And um, or when we're talking about parenting choices and suddenly whether or not your child is allowed to eat those pouches 
baby food straight from the pouch or whether you squeeze it into a spoon is like, are you calling me a bad parent? And um, that's because we don't, proportional response really isn't our jam. But we start this, because we start to think that our survival and our reputation is on us. And when we do that, we screw everything up. We get worried about retaliation, we get worried, we start telling lies because we don't want to be shamed, but then we are afraid we're going to get caught in those lies and so we have to spin. Um, we run ourselves into debt, trying to buy our way out of worry. We lose relationships, we wreck creation, we oppress people. Um, when Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, he's not suggesting that we ignore injustice. He's suggesting that we leave it to him because he deals with justice without messing everything up. Um, here's another journalism analogy for you, the comment section. Um, that wonderful 21st century invention. Um, sometimes the comment section will really come after you. Um, un unlike many journalists, I do read the comment section. The conventional wisdom is you don't read it. I do because there are times when I get it wrong and somebody in the comment section has the right answer. And um, they may not deliver it in a way that feels good to me, like calling me bigot or bleeding heart, whatever, but they are right. And so I, I read it. But there's also times where most of the criticisms comes from somebody who didn't read the article, don't be that guy, <laughs> didn't read the article, but thinks they know what it says and feels the need to say something, or just didn't like what it said. It's all true, but they don't like the implication. And so um, it's always tempting in those situations for me to get in and start defending and start being like, no, here's my data. Here's what they said. Here's the truth. Here's, let me give you a history lesson on segregation and blah, 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 you know. But the thing is, if I were to do that online, I would have to be professional in my interaction with Flesh Eater 247 and I Hate Puppies 1994. <laughs> and like, they're not playing that game. They're not here to compare data. Um, however, if I let their fellow trolls of the internet handle it, they handle it, and they'll duke it out in ways that, like, I don't really know what's going on. They speak troll. And so God's not an internet troll, but he has an eternity of experience fighting injustice. He knows what he's doing. And so we're safe just letting him lead. We're safe being faithful to him in his word and trusting that he is dealing with injustice. Um. Taking shelter in God means we have peace during those conflicts. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus hints that doing what God asks of you may, not, may lead to conflict. Um, in Matthew 5, 10, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so we know that while we're persecuted, we have this internal peace, knowing that God is working what he's going to work. But then it gets even better for these persecuted do-gooders um, because for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So not only are we protected, we're blessed. We're taken care of. The shelter isn't just defense, it's offense. It's giving, it's provision. And so ultimately, yes, this means the kingdom of God. It means getting to share in the promises of God. But I think along the way, he gives us sketches of what that's going to look like. Um, and I stole that term sketches from my husband um, and who is coincidentally one of my sketches of God's goodness 
and I'm going to embarrass him now. Um, so I broke up with my college boyfriend when I was 19. And for the next seven years, I went on three first dates and no second dates. My little sister got married. Seven of my cousins got married. And I didn't even have dates for their weddings. Um, occasionally, I would bottom out about this and, think, and say dramatic things like, I think God has forgotten me. Um, because that's what it felt like, because I was lonely and it was miserable. Um, and then one day, I had this friend who was my running partner. Um, and she said, she was one of those people who obnoxiously was trying to fend off all the same guys I was trying to date. And so she said, I met him. I met your guy. I found him. And I was like, I, I doubt that. Um, are you just trying to not have to date him? And she said, no, 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 no. I met him. I immediately thought of you. Well, when is anyone ever right about that? She was right. <laughs> and she introduced us. And... Um, not only did this guy end up liking me and asking me out on multiple dates, he asked me to marry him, and he was better looking and funnier and nicer than all the other yahoos who I hadn't dated. <laughs> so after we, when we'd been dating for a while, he asked me to marry him, I said yes. I go in to tell my pastor, who blessed this man, has listened to me for seven years, whine and cry and you know, rend my garments over how miserable and lonely I am. And <laughs> he goes... Now do you believe me that God loves you? I said, oh, I've always known God loves me. He was like, no, like save the best bite of the hamburger loves you. You know the bite I'm talking about. Like you've eaten down on both sides. It's kind of at a point. It's the right ratio of meat to sauce. You know the bite. And you know how when you're, somebody's like, oh, can I try a bite of that? And you're like, oh man, I've been working on getting to this bite. God saves you that bite. And for me, that bite was Lewis. So, <laughs> y'all are, thanks. Um, he's like staring at the ground up here. Um, but, of course, God doesn't always provide the sketch. Sometimes he doesn't provide the spouse, the job, the raise, the kids, the house, the health. He doesn't silence our critics and deliver this lovely public justice where they're humiliated and we're vindicated. Um, I fantasize about that. It doesn't happen. Um, what he does do is give us real abundant life in the middle of the longing, in the, in the middle of the disappointment, in the middle of the anger. When I think of shelter, I think of a safe place amid the chaos. The chaos hasn't stopped. The shelter in the middle, there's peace inside. Um, and the chaos outside is telling us that we have to lie, that we have to um, compromise our integrity, that we have to condemn ourselves, that we're not, uh, that we're not lovable that we have to do all that stuff to take care of ourselves and to protect ourselves. But if we live according to God's word, then we know we're loved and we don't have to do all of those things. So outside is striving, retaliation, and hate, and inside are the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, all of those things sound like a lovely way to live if only we could be free from the stuff outside. The shelter and provision of God means we also don't have to hoard. Um, we talked about this, Drew talked about this a little bit last week about tithing and money. Um, but I think it also applies to opportunities. And that's a lot of what I write about in, in journalism and in education is the hoarding of opportunity. When God provided manna for the Israelites, he told them, don't gather more than what you need for a day. If you do, it's going to spoil. And they tried it anyway. Sure enough, they came in the next day, it was spoiled. 
We also pray, give us this day our daily bread. There's an idea that we don't need to store up stuff for ourselves because he's going to continue to be faithful. Um, but I see this a lot. I see the hoarding of the best schools, the competitive sports team, the tutors, the whatever it'll take to make their child more successful instead of trusting God. And it's not that saving money or doing those things for your kids are wrong. It's that it can become this priority in which we're willing to compromise everything because we think that opportunity or that savings account is what keeps us safe. That's our shelter. And um, if you doubt that that happens in education, by the way, um, we can go to lunch. I'll share my data with you. Um, so the, yeah, the amount of anxiety we put in, we all saw the college scandal that broke where movie stars are paying thousands of dollars to get their kids. I mean, if you have any doubt that there is an idol and that we are taking shelter in that opportunity, there's your proof. But that works its way, there's, it happens throughout. There are gradients of that all the way down um, to those of us who don't have Lori Laughlin's income. So trusting God's shelter means that you gather your manna, you put your kids in school, you put away the money that you, know, you need to put away, but you don't do it beyond what's needed. You certainly don't do it in a form of competition keep other children down. Um, and as Americans, we have a really hard time with that. And Proverbs 30, right after this, goes on to address just that. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me the falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That is the request for just enough. And it stands in contradiction to a lot of what we've even heard preached in Christian context, which is that there will be more and more and more and more in accordance to your faithfulness, the prosperity gospel, or the other, that every earthly hurricane or whatever is somehow God smiting people for the you know, the sinfulness, like the, the sinfulness of one city might have brought on its destruction, or if, oh, if we were just better Christians, then, you know, earthquakes wouldn't happen, that kind of thing. So you've heard, you, it's likely that you've heard it, and sometimes they can be like radical, fringy TV preachers, but we hear versions of that throughout our life, and I think a lot of us are tempted to think like that, like, oh, this bad thing has happened to me, what have I done to deserve this? I think that's a lot of thing that People ask Jesus, and Jesus replies with just grace. Um, so that brings us to the nothing but the truth part of Proverbs 35 through 6, which is do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Um, Jesus gives us a good, idea, a good picture of what it looks like to add to his words and what he rebukes. So the, um, oh, it's all up there. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. So James and John no doubt smarting a little bit from the rejection that just happened, are like, 
Shall we burn them up? Shall we call down fire and completely eviscerate them? Who among us cannot sympathize? Um, and the other thing is that fire without heaven is not without precedent. Fire has come down from heaven and consumed people. And so they're thinking like, hey, we have a biblical justification for burning this village to the ground. Let's do it. Um, and Jesus rebukes them because they are adding, the, the punishment for this village is that they didn't get to know the peace of Christ and the joy of accepting him. But James and John are like, let's add fire and that'll really drive the point home. And we do that. We, we reach into scripture and find those little texts and we pull them out to serve our ends. And the case in point, and yes, I'm going to go there, is slavery. Um, I feel like it's one of the, it's like pulling out Nazis or slavery as like the ultimate example, but I really do believe that this is. Um, in the run-up to the Civil War, Christians used phrases like slaves obey your masters to justify the existence of slavery. However, few of them place this in the context of the whole truth of the Bible, which is that God is all about setting slaves and captives free. That's the narrative, like Drew mentioned earlier, the narrative thrust of the Bible is freedom. That's what he does in Exodus. Communion, as Drew pointed out, is also known as Passover. It is a um, freedom meal. And I want to point out that the biblical context for slavery isn't the same slavery that was being practiced during the slave trade. If you want to know God's heart toward the institution of American slavery, you're better off looking up the word captive and what Jesus says about captives. Um, and we're not going to unpack that much more, just to say that we have used, we have this long history of using the Bible in its selective pieces and parts, put into our own context, and used for our ends to justify whatever it is that we particularly want to do. Even the sinful stuff, even the racism and the sexism and the um, economic oppression. And the difficult part of this is that we're made in the image of God, and so we're made to want what is true. Every single person is, because they're made in the image of God, is in pursuit of what is true, good, and beautiful. But because we're fallen, we exchange that, and we don't know what it is, and we exchange it for what is false and untrue and ugly. Oh, sorry. Good, true, and beautiful, false, bad, and ugly. Um, our sinfulness... In our sinfulness, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And so you can't even make it as simple in some cases as saying, what does the Bible say? Because we bring our sinfulness and our perspective even to the way we read the Bible sometimes. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky and sticky because you see it through a lens and it seems to justify what you want. And that is why... Um, It's really important to get to know Jesus well. It's important that we share a spirit with him because ultimately Jesus is the word made flesh. He's the yes to all of God's promises like we sang earlier. And the best journalists are the ones who really, really know their subject so that when a data point looks off or when a quote seems wrong, um, they're able to dig a little deeper and question it and find what's going on. They can sniff out lies because they're familiar with the truth. Um, whether that's housing policy, international politics, education, just the people in the, 
in their community. They know them well, so they know, they know the truth so well that falseness looks out of place. Um, and that's what we need to be like with Jesus. We know him so well that when we see his words twisted or added to, it doesn't, it bounces off. It doesn't fit. Um, so here's my, here's my takeaway for you. Knowing Jesus like that is knowing freedom. Truth, with a capital T, always leads to more freedom. There's even a Bible verse. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Um, and that's, so when you hear something, if it doesn't bring more freedom, that's a sign that it's bouncing off of the capital T truth. Um, and it's not freedom from reality, but the freedom to live in the fullness of reality. Uh, this, there's this a variation on an illustration that's been used by many, many people. Um, when we watch gym, gymnasts during their floor exercise, we see freedom of movement. Um, their bodies don't look to be limited in the same way that ours are. Um, but that doesn't come from one day walking out on the floor and being like, today I'm going to act like gravity doesn't exist, and I'm just going to do what I want. Um, pretending that gravity doesn't exist would not allow them to do what they do. They work with gravity. They use gravity to create momentum, to create the spins, they condition their muscles according to the biological truth about how muscles work. They don't just think, mm, today I feel strong. No, they condition. Um, they gain their freedom from pressing into the fullness of reality, not ignoring it. And we see over and over that once a barrier is broken, whether it's the four-minute mile, the quadruple jump in ice skating, swimming of the English Channel, more people see that the boundary of reality has been moved. We say things like, define gravity, uh, actually, Wicked says that. Um, but we talk about things like, oh, they're breaking, you know, this is unreal, or they're defying this, the laws of whatever. They're not. They're opening up our eyes to how far out this goes and how small we've been living. And that's what God does. That's what knowing Jesus does, is it pushes the boundary of freedom out until we're experiencing fullness and more freedom and more ability to move in this bigger reality that's his. Um, and so we think of freedom as doing whatever we want with no rules, but it is, we're not designed to live without those limits because we're not all powerful and all knowing it's alignment. Freedom is alignment with reality so that we aren't inhibited by errors or artificial boundaries, including the errors of sin and the boundaries of adding to God's word. Freedom means not being bogged down by shame or self-loathing because the truth is that you're loved by God. Freedom means being free from worry that you'll be caught in your lies because if you're loved unconditionally, you have no reason to lie. It means being free to stop drinking or to look away from your screen if when you need to because the truth is that you don't need to dull or distract from a world where God is for you. Freedom is the result of living according to the truth. Let's pray. Father God, you have come to set us free. Show us the bigness of your world and what it means for us to live and move in that and delight in your truth um, because it is big and it is wonderful and it is beautiful and that is where we are meant to be. Amen.